Good morning. My name is Mike Gakey. I'm one of the pastors here. And if you have a Bible, we're going to dig into this chapter 15 of the book of Genesis. So you can turn there. It's the easiest book to find. It's the first one. So if you go to Genesis, go to the big numbers 15, and we are going to be there this morning. Happy Mother's Day to everyone. Happy Mother's Day to the mother of my children. I don't know if she's in here this morning. We have a really special, very special family Mother's Day tradition at our house. I take my children and we go to a movie and Stephanie stays home for three hours and watches golf on the sofa. (laughs) And she is especially excited to enjoy the Byron Nelson this afternoon while the rest of us go see Endgame. So some of you know I used to be a lawyer before I was a pastor and Um, When I was in law school, I I sort of um, thrived in the more practical legal classes. Um, I got my first and only, in my very first semester of law school, my first and only D ever in constitutional law, which means I probably would have been a good politician. (laughs) But I got an A in contracts. My first job out of law school was with a big firm, and I worked in their commercial litigation section, and I always say I represented big, uh, rich, mean entities against other big, rich, mean entities. I eventually moved from litigation to the business side of our firm, where instead of fighting over broken contracts, I spent lots of time and went through reams of paper writing contracts. Contracts are designed to spell out an agreement between two or more parties. Contracts have terms, they have stipulations, they have recitations of what every party uh, to the contract is saying that they will do in this contract. And there's a description in the contract of what happens in the event that one party does not live up to their side of the bargain. So once a contract was agreed upon, the two parties would close the transaction And in the realm of contracts that I did at my work, that usually took place in the um, uh, conference room of one of the law firms. We would have blue pens to to make sure we knew exactly which were the original documents. My secretary, and I realize this dates me, um, I'm old enough to where the person who worked for me was my secretary. I don't know what they would call that person today. She was a delightful older woman. She loved me. Um, like her own son, and her husband owned a donut shop. Every morning, I had a hot donut on my desk for several years. But she would bring her big notary book, and we would um, sit there and all together in this very formal thing sign the contract. And then a couple of years later, someone would break a covenant in that contract, and it would all start over again, again in our commercial litigation section of our firm. But today's text shows us a picture of a truly radical, extraordinary covenant between God and Abram. And in this passage today, we see a closing that, as I studied it this week, I was profoundly moved. It is quite possibly the most powerful picture of the gospel that I've seen in God's word. And I would also like to point out that this is the weirdest Mother's Day passage ever. But let's pray and see what God has to say to us in Genesis 15. God, I'm so grateful this morning for your word. I'm grateful for the wholeness of it, for the revelation of yourself in it, for the picture we see in it of us, 
whether we are in this room and we know you or whether we are in this room and we have yet to connect with you in relationship, this word shows us who we are apart from you and in you. God, I pray this morning as we get into this very odd passage, God, I pray and I pray that you um, would not allow my words to at all get in the way of this amazing picture. I pray that everything I say this morning would reflect your heart, would reflect who you are. And God, I pray for soft hearts. I pray that not one of us would leave this place unchanged this morning. We love you and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are back in Genesis. We took a little hiatus in Lent during the season of Lent before Easter. And last week, Ryan opened this series back up with the story of Abram. He's not, his name has not yet been changed to Abraham. The story of his calling from God that was in Genesis 12. This is the story last week of Abram's first connection with God. And it's very interesting. Abraham was not, or Abram, was not seeking God. God initiated the relationship with him. As Ryan taught last week, Abram was an idolater. He worshipped all of the little g-gods that everyone else worshipped. Yet he was confronted by the one true God. It is fascinating to me when I just let myself think about that whole experience and what that means for all of us. But in, in Genesis 12, God just talks outright to Abram and Abram listens to him. God tells Abram, essentially, I want you to leave everything in which, that you have found your identity in. I want you to leave your lands. I want you to leave your country. I want you to leave your father's house, it says, your family. I want you to leave your traditions. I want you to leave everything in exchange for this promise. And then God makes him this promise. You leave everything, and this is what I will give you. I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. This is one giant promise. And it's especially big when you consider that Abram was 75 years old, that he had no children, and that his wife was unable to have children. But Abram does as the Lord says, and he obeys, he takes his wife, and he takes his brother Lot, and they leave. Now in the verses from last week, in chapter 12, through this week in chapter 15, some crazy stuff happens. We see that Abraham doesn't just immediately be trans, become transformed into this perfect man, but throughout those verses, God continues to clarify his promises. God speaks to describe the exact lands that he has promised Abram's offspring. Then Abram and his crew, they encounter a famine. It causes them to go to Egypt. They get to Egypt and Abram fears for his own life. And essentially he throws his beautiful wife Sarai under the bus. He says, you claim to be my sister. And then what he really does is he pimps her out to the Pharaoh. God intervenes to protect Sarai and he exposes this ruse of Abram and Abram takes Sarai back and then they run. He gets yet another promise after this whole thing of lands for his offspring and God tells him your offspring will number as many as the dust of the earth. And then more things happen. Eventually he actually has to rescue Lot who's been kidnapped and then that brings us to chapter 15 as Marley just read and thank you Marley for uh, 
enduring all of those ites in that passage. This text, I think, is so amazing. It is so monumental in what it describes to us. It is so important for us. And I want to talk really about two things. I want to talk about this radical covenant that was made, and I want to talk about the way this looks to that radical covenant being fulfilled. But there's a lot to explain. If you paid attention to Marley, there's a lot to explain in this chapter. And I want to jump in. So we are in, in, in chapter 15, right at the beginning. God appears again to Abram, and he says, Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. So obviously Abram is afraid, else God wouldn't have had to say, Fear not. We're not sure exactly what he is afraid of, but remember, he has left everything to follow God. It has not gone exactly smooth thus far. Remember, he pawned his wife off, for one thing. Lot was kidnapped, and he had to rescue him. God has made these big promises, but those promises seem so unrealistic to Abram. And he doesn't seem overly comforted by God's words right here at the beginning of chapter 15. And in the verses that follow, we see glimpses of Abram's fear and of his doubt and of his questions. Verse 2 and 3 says this, But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. So in that culture, when there was no heir, oftentimes people would sort of appoint a servant or somebody in their household to be their heir. They wanted to make sure the estate didn't get lost. They wanted someone who would promise to care for them in their old age. They wanted someone to make sure that they were buried properly. And that's very likely the role that Eliezer is playing in this passage. And Abram says, essentially here, he says, you made me a promise that out of me would come a great nation that would bless all families of the world. You promised me that my offspring would number the dust of the earth, but I still do not have a kid. This is a very human Abram. He is expressing doubt, not so much that God will do what he said, but wondering how and when he will do it. And God promises again as he tells him to look to the sky. He says, just try to count the stars. That is how many offspring you will have. And then in verse 6, we read this. It says, and he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And Abram believed the Lord, and God counted it to Abram as righteousness. This is a huge verse for us as Christ followers. Paul, when he is explaining grace in Romans 4, 3 and in Galatians 3, 6, points back to this very verse. James also references it in James 2, 23. Abram believed the Lord. Abram did not just believe in the Lord. This is not just him acknowledging that God was God. This is important because James, when he is explaining what real faith looks like in James, he mentions, you know, even the demons believe in God. And they shudder. This isn't some abstract idea of, of the existence of a God. This is, says Abram believed God. This is a very personal and a very deep belief. It means he took God at his word. He believed what God said would become a reality, and then he acted on that belief. He trusted not just that God was who he said he was. He did believe that. He did believe in God, but it wasn't just that. 
He also trusted that God would do what God said he would do. And because of that faith, God counts him as righteous. God counts Abram as acceptable to himself. But then right after that powerful statement, we see that Abram still has questions. In verse 8, he says, Oh, Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? I think it's interesting just to interject right here. Watching God deal with Abram, Abram's back and forth and his questions and his doubts is a, is a great reminder for us that God is okay with our questions. Abram believed God. When he went to him with a question, he believed that God had the answer and he wanted the answer. He was not going to him as a way to challenge God. He was going to him expecting an answer. And God loves it when we come to him with our questions. Abram believes. He just has questions. And God responds to his questions honestly. He responds to them with grace. And he gives an amazing visual of his response. So the first thing God does is he asks Abram to gather a few animals. He says this in verse 9. He said to him, God said to Abram, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Now, Abram does exactly what God asked him to do. He gathers these animals, and then in verse 10 it says this, And he, Abram, brought him, God, and he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. Now, this can seem really odd, right? A little bloody, a little gross. It's, it, it can seem shocking to us, but the reason it is shocking to us is because we live in the year 2019 in America. But Abram, in his time, knew exactly what was going on. God did not have to tell him what to do with the animals because Abram knew because he knew that when God requested those animals, that God was wanting to cut a covenant with Abram. God was about to enter into contract with Abram. And at that time, contracts weren't neat and clean and sealed with a signature. It was an oral storytelling culture that, in essence, they acted out the covenant. The same way our signatures today would indicate our willingness to be held bound to a contract, the ritual that Abram was preparing for indicated a willingness to be bound to a contract in that day. Abram followed the protocol of that day for the ratification of an agreement. He split the animals in half and then he laid them opposite each other so that the blood would flow down between them. And then each party to the contract would walk between the split animals and through the blood. And when they walked between the split animals, they were saying, if I do not carry out my part of this covenant, then may it happen to me as happened to these animals. Covenants were a big deal. The parties did not sign something agreeing to go to arbitration. They essentially said, may I be torn to pieces if I fail to carry out my end of this bargain. Imagine if we still did this today. 
Imagine someone comes to my house to do some work, maybe an electrician, maybe a plumber, and instead of signing a contract that lays out their labor and my payment, what if uh, instead I said, um, hey, I've got a heifer cut in half in the backyard. (laughs) How about we both walk through the pieces, and if you don't do what you promised, and I don't do what I promised, we agree to both agree to being likewise torn to pieces. I think I would get some very good plumbing work. I think I would never slow pay. And I also think I'd have a hard time finding anyone to come to do work at my house. But this was not unusual or abnormal for Abram. He knew the significance of what was about to happen. And it says this in verse 12. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. So the commentaries on this passage explain that this was not a sleep like we know it, and this was not a dream like it may seem when we read this. The language here really is that Abram went into sort of a trance. He was overwhelmed with dread at the reality that lay before him. The darkness was not on the outside. So we know in this passage it was dusk. It says the sun was setting, but later the passage references the real, literal, physical darkness after the sun had set. This darkness was not on the outside. This darkness was on the inside. He was about to enter a covenant with the one true God, with Almighty God, the creator and the possessor of heaven and earth. And he sat there and he was well aware of his weaknesses. He was well aware of his fear and of his doubt. He knew that he was capable of pretty stupid things. His was not a life, and he knew it, of robust faithfulness at this point. Remember that crazy giving your wife to Pharaoh thing? The darkness and dread were because he knew that if he and God walked between the pieces of those animals, that it was pretty likely that he would be the one who failed. He would be the one torn to pieces. And while he was in this state, God affirms the promise of the land for his offspring. And then this is verse 13 through 16. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. This is not a short-term promise. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you... You shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. God affirms his promise. But then something extraordinary happens. Abram knew about cutting a covenant. He knew the procedure. But he would never have imagined what happens next. It says in verse 17. When the sun had gone down. Now it is physically dark. When the sun had gone down and it was dark. Behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. Abram watches as God passes between these pieces. So whenever God manifests himself in his word, something that's called a theophany, it is so, off, it is so otherworldly that, that words really cannot describe it. But this language here, this language of a fire pot, 
um, and, and a flaming torch. It's very similar to the language that is used to describe God's appearance on Mount Sinai years later. It is very similar um, to the description of, of the pillar of God's presence that, that guided God's people through the Exodus. What Abram saw was God passing between the animals and speaking the word of his covenant. Now here is what makes this so extraordinary. And Abram would have been well aware of this reality. In this time when covenants were entered into between a king or a powerful person and a subject or a person of lesser status, very often only the lesser person or only the subject would actually be required to walk between the pieces. It was considered such a privilege just to enter into contract with the king, and a king would never um, submit to stoop so low as, as to agree to make this sort of promise. So only the subject would actually be bound by the I agree to be torn to pieces rule. But here, only God passes between the pieces. In essence, this is what God is saying to Abraham here. I agree to do what I have promised. If not, I agree to be torn to pieces. I agree to the destruction of all of my godness. Now that would have been striking enough. And because God cannot cease to be God, that might have given Abram the assurances he needed as far as God's trustworthiness was concerned with regard to the promise that God made to him. But God doesn't stop there. In being the only one to pass between the pieces, God is taking the oath for himself and for Abram. God is saying, not only do I agree to take the penalty if I do not do what is required of me under this covenant, but I also agree to take the penalty for what is required of you under this covenant. He passed through the pieces for himself, and he passed through the pieces as a substitute for Abram. He spoke in this moment to Abram's questions about whether or not he could trust God, but he also spoke to Abram's dark, dreadful fears of his own inabilities and his own struggle that he knew he would have to remain faithful. God promised at this moment in history to bear the penalty for Abram's failures to live up to the standards of righteousness required, as we will see later, by the law. He says, I will give you all that I promised, even if it means that I must die for your unfaithfulness. My friends, this is an amazing picture of the gospel. Sometimes it's easy to read these Old Testament stories that are so weird. I mean, cutting heifers in half and it just gets bogged down and we forget every one of these stories. This entire book, the entire Old Testament points to Jesus. In John 5, Jesus is talking to the religious leaders and he says, he, 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 he tells them, you have looked to the Old Testament words to find eternal life. But you have missed true eternal life because you fail to see that these words, Jesus said, you fail to see that these words bear witness to me. This covenant with Abram 
where the promise is made to bless all people through Abram's offspring, and where God promises to fulfill both his obligation and Abram's. This covenant speaks into all covenants that would follow, because those are all covenants that man, in our sinfulness, would never be able to meet. Years later, the world again descended into darkness, and it again descended into dread and into despair as God fulfilled his promise to bless all people through Abram's offspring. It didn't descend into darkness and despair because God failed to carry out his end of the deal. He fulfilled his promise. He gave Abram a son. We will learn about that. He gave Abram's descendants the land he had promised. And through Abram's offspring did come a great nation, the nation of Israel. And through those descendants ultimately came Jesus, the offspring who would bring blessing to the whole world. God kept his promise. But Abram and all that have followed him, we have failed because we could not in our fallen flesh succeed. But God in Jesus carried out the penalty as he promised in Genesis 15. He carried it out for Abram's unfaithfulness, but also for ours. He was torn to pieces. Isaiah 53, 8. A prophecy of Isaiah that's looking forward to Jesus, that's looking forward to the fulfillment of this covenant in Jesus, says this. He, speaking of Jesus, he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. Paul explains this in Galatians 3, 13 and 14. It says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who, hanged, who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abram might come to the Gentiles. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. We too, today, we can believe and be counted as righteous through faith. And as Paul says in Galatians 3.29, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Christ took our place and he instituted a new covenant that you and I may enter, a covenant of salvation, fully unconditional and fully a covenant of grace by faith. And in that covenant, we share in the promises and the blessing of Abraham. So what do we do with a chapter like this today? I think there are two questions everyone in this room has to answer for themselves. The first one is this, do you believe? And the second one is this, do you live like you believe? I know there are people in this room, people for whom God passed between the pieces, but people who are struggling to surrender to Christ. The result of this sacrifice is that anyone like Abram can believe in faith. They can trust God with their lives. They can surrender their will to God. They can be counted righteous and fully acceptable and welcomed into relationship with God. But I think that many people resist following Christ and, and, and submitting their lives to God because they struggle in one of two ways. First, they struggle to believe that God can be trusted. Can I trust this God with whom I am being asked to surrender my life. Or they struggle to believe that God could truly love them, that this sacrifice is enough to save them. 
They think that somehow they are too flawed or too sinful or too far gone or too bad to be loved by God enough to be died for. This passage in Genesis 15 speaks to both of those things. It explains to us God's trustworthiness. He promised a redeemer and he and he followed through on that promise. He promised to take the penalty for all of our unfaithfulness. And in Jesus, he followed through with that promise so that through faith, you too could be counted righteous. And that is true no matter the baggage that you drag to the altar. Do you believe that? This is the simple place that it starts for every one of us. It starts for all of us with a belief in that truth. It starts with all of us with Jesus. Do you believe God is who he says he is? That Jesus is who he says he is? Do you believe that you were doomed to fail and that you have failed? Do you believe that he passed through the pieces for you and that he took your penalty once you believe that Jesus is the way and you take that step of faith in him, his spirit moves in. He lives inside of you and he empowers everything he calls you to do and even the hardest things he empowers you to do it and you realize that you find joy and fulfillment in those things. The truth is that some of you believe but you're not living like you believe. Let me tell you, this story from Genesis 15, this is the stuff that shatters hard, prideful hearts. It is the stuff that heals broken hearts. It is the stuff that transforms selfish hearts. It is the stuff that captivates longing hearts. I'm not sure that something like this, if you can truly get it, I'm not sure that it cannot change you. It will change your motivations. It will compel in you a desire that your life would bring God glory through testimony, through faith, through obedience. Who of you in this room, if somebody just gifted you a million dollars, would simply shrug and go on living life as normal? And this is infinitely more valuable than a million dollars. I think that for some of you, maybe God is showing you that you have not valued this gift enough. And here's what happens when we don't value the gift enough. We don't enjoy it in the way that God intended because we're continuing to live as if we never received it. Some of you believe in God for salvation, but you struggle to trust God in the details of your life. When God passed through those pieces, he made his greatest promise to us. But as new covenant believers in Jesus, he has made hundreds of of additional promises. They are not necessarily promises to change our circumstances, but they are promises to be with us in our circumstances and, and enable us to not be controlled by our circumstances. They are promises of joy and of peace and of purpose and of fulfillment and of provision and of abundant life. Every one of those promises Paul says to us is answered yes in Christ Jesus. And when we trust in the promise, the big promise of God, and then we trust in the promises of God, he becomes the anchor that keeps us from being overwhelmed by our circumstances. It's interesting, Abram didn't know Jesus, but his anchor in God allowed him to walk faithfully 
though not perfectly, but to walk faithfully through very long periods of waiting, through great tests and trials, and through incredible, incredibly trying circumstances. But for us, living in the, in the beauty of the new covenant, Jesus can be the anchor of our souls. I want to close with this passage from Hebrews. This is Hebrews 6, starting at verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Last weekend, I go run down at the marina on Saturdays and there were catamaran races. And there were many other boats out in the bay anchored to watch the catamaran races. And I love watching the bay. I'm fascinated. You can actually see all the different currents swirling around. You can see water going in different directions all the time. And yet these boats remain fixed and able to focus on the race that was before them. Jesus is that for us in a sea of swirling circumstances. Circumstances that are good sometimes, but also are painful sometimes and scary sometimes and tumultuous. God bore our penalty so that we could have the anchor of his son and so that we like abram could keep our eyes fixed on him and grow in faith and trust and defeat the power of circumstances in our lives he passed between the pieces for you he will hold you fast and you can have perfect assurance of that this morning will you live like you believe no matter how unbelievable his promises may seem for you today.